America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when we are in the midst of a great presidential campaign, at least great in the sense of the number of Republican contenders for president. A new contenders just the last couple of days, including the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, and including the governor of North Dakota, who's been a guest on this show, uh, Doug Bergram, and uh, most recently, uh, including Will Hurd, former congressman from Texas. So with all of that, is there any real alternative, viable alternative to Donald Trump uh, with polls showing that he is way ahead, that people are not bothered by his... Uh, his indictments, and in fact, the indictments may have helped to rally people to his cause. Uh, there is a um, provocative piece in Atlantic. It is called An Exit from the GOP's Labyrinth of Trump Lies, and suggesting that the special counsel's indictment offers party leaders their best escape from the loyalty trap yet. So what is the loyalty trap, and what is that escape? Uh, pleasure to speak with David Frum, the author of that piece. He is a former presidential speechwriter in the Bush administration for President George W. Bush. He uh, is the author of 10 books, most recently Trumpocracy and uh, Trumpocalypse. And uh, he writes for The Atlantic on topics ranging from politics to policy to art, literature, and history. Uh, David, with, with all of this going on, I mean, maybe the country can at least be united in mourning for the five uh, individuals who died in the submersible called the Titan uh, going down to visit the Titanic. But uh, turns out there there's all kinds of revisions of uh, old conspiracy theories about the original Titanic crash. Uh, so we we seem to be in a in a period of time where there is a great deal of love for malevolent fiction, don't you think? Yes. You know, the, the, it is a uniquely horrifying thought being trapped at the bottom of the sea. Um, some of your um, uh, listeners of a certain age may remember the terrible story of the USS Thresher, uh, a submarine that sank in 1963, um, and it was, I think, it, it is certainly the deadliest submarine incident in U.S. history, um, maybe the deadliest, 130 people killed, 129 people killed. Um, it, it just, there's so many of these dark memories and dark, um, dark terrors that are stirred by this terrible story. Yeah, the um, uh, conspiracy theories about the, this crash involve, you'll not be shocked to hear, the Rothschild family and the Federal Reserve Bank mm -hmm. and more. Uh, but we don't have to spend time on that. First of all, when you talk about an exit from the GOP's labyrinth of lies, uh, does that exit mean just moving on to a candidate who isn't named Donald J. Trump, or does it mean more than that? I think it means something more. What I was talking about here was a um, when I called it a labyrinth, that leaders of the Republican Party, um, elected officials, uh, governors and senators, um, they have views that they will talk to journalists about and they will talk to each other about, but they don't talk to their voters about. 
because they, they they're terrified of their voters. But why are they so terrified of their voters? They've told the voter the, the, the voters a story. Um, they've built a reality for their voters that the voters then hold those officials to. And there's this kind of game of cynicism where um, leaders in the Republican Party want Trump gone. Uh, they they know that um, everything that is alleged, especially in this latest indictment, is is both true and serious. The first New York State indictment, it, the allegations were true, but maybe not so serious. But but this time around, the allegations are the indictments are true and serious. Um, his legal prospects are grim. Uh, he is likely to find himself on the wrong end of a jury, um, and there isn't a lot of dispute. And yet they are that everyone's looking around to say, well, who's going to be the first to say this and to reach for the exit? We and we counted on being able to get out of this this trap whenever we wanted to. And now we find that we ourselves are hemmed in by the trap. And uh, when when you talk about lies, are there lies more generally about, uh, I mean, for instance, one of the things we we're coming up to the anniversary of the Dobbs decision and uh, and people on the Republican side are talking uh, widely about a national ban uh, on abortion after 15 weeks or something of that nature. Is is that deceiving uh, yeah. people about what is actually possible? No, I, I think um, with Dobbs, we're at last on the way to a great national clearing of the air on, on the abortion issue. Um, and I think we've all we've all lived in this world where on abortion for 50 years has been a kind of kabuki politics where people pretend, say say things they don't mean. Because they count on the court holding their court or restraining them. And so you can take – Republicans especially have been able to take positions that are not in line with their own private thinking, with what Republican voters are. It's all become symbolic politics because it was assumed, well, Roe versus Wade constrained what we could do. Um, in the world of Dobbs, America is free to make abortion choices. American governments are free to make abortion choices. And America now has to face what do each of us as voters, what do each of us as politicians, what do we really think? Um, and it's, it's no longer cost a cost-free exercise where you can take a stand and um, please the most extreme members of your coalition, knowing you will never have to honor that check. Now the checks have to be honored, um, and uh, and politicians have to find solutions that work. In a way, it's a little bit like the world after alcohol prohibition ended, which is you have to find an alcohol re- regime that America could live with. Prohibition didn't work. Um, the, the old saloon, no one wanted to see that back. Now we have to find a regime that works. And, uh, okay, eventually we, we kind of did. But you know, on terms of uh, the, the actual campaign right now with a dozen different uh, announced candidates, uh, some of whom are very little known, uh, what, what is the best exit, you use the term, from a Trump nomination? Um, the, the party has to uh, coalesce rapidly around somebody else. And early on, it looked like that that person would be uh, Ron DeSantis. Um, but DeSantis, DeSantis made a decision, which is he was not going to fight Trump. He was not going to take him on. He was going to try to get around him. He was trying to get past him, but he would try to pretend that Trump wasn't there. And Trump never accepted this deal. <laughs> you may be trying to get around me. I'm going to hit you in the face, and I'm going to keep hitting you in the face, um, and I'm going to make it look like you – I'm going to make it visible that you won't fight me even as I fight you. Um, and so we have seen this deflation of, of DeSantis. And now there, there are other candidates, most of whom um, don't have a lot of chance. Uh, and I think 
um, whether it's Tim Scott, whether it's Brian Kemp, that non-Trump Republicans have to coalesce around one person. And it's hard to do in the day of the part of the primary. There are no smoke-filled rooms. There are no negotiators. But somehow the collective mind of the Republican Party has to agree, look, Trump's in serious legal trouble. Um, it's, it's both politically, morally, ethically impossible. Time to move on. Time to move on to somebody. Agree on someone. And uh, what about Glenn Youngkin? I mean, apparently earlier this week on Tuesday, he was 10 for 10 uh, in the primaries for the legislative elections in Virginia. And people are talking about if uh, he's successful in November and Virginia votes for the legislature, both houses, which are very closely divided, Virginia votes in November. Is uh, Youngkin still a possibility? We will get to that and more uh, with David Frum. And uh, what does it all mean? Are people going to be as excited to participate in this election with record turnouts again, like we had in 2020, and we did? Uh, We will get to that and more with David Frum of Atlantic Magazine coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. That is plain and simply outrageous. 1-800-955-1776. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, MyPillow is launching the MyPillow 2.0. Back when MyPillow was invented, it had everything you could want in a pillow. Now, nearly two decades later, they've discovered a new... And on the Michael Medved Show, talking about the future of the Republican Party and the fight for the nomination and uh, the plethora of candidates, many of them very interesting people, by the way, and there's all kinds of conversation about additional candidates coming to the fore. Uh, one of them is a U.S. senator from Florida, where else, who uh, is up for re-election actually this time. But uh, there is some talk that uh, Rick Scott, not Tim Scott, but Senator Scott of Florida, the former governor, uh, may be planning his own entry into the race. Who knows? Uh, and what about Governor Youngkin? There was a, an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about how well his candidates did in the Republican primaries, uh, putting together a more mainstream, less MAGA uh, vision of the Republican Party, and particularly with some of the primary victories that uh, they won in the primary election that was just held on Tuesday. Is Youngkin, you believe, David Frum, a uh, a viable possibility? Uh, pick somebody. I'm not fussy. But it, it would be a, a smart idea to pick somebody who has played politics in a purple state, in a Virginia, in a Colorado, uh, in, in, in a state where things are really competitive. And uh, Florida used to be like like that, but Florida is becoming like Ohio, a solid Republican state where you can. Uh, and th- this has been, I think, the, the DeSantis problem is that he's he's used to playing politics only within uh, a party framework. And as you see, as he contests with Trump, that he's he's giving a lot of hostages to fortune. He's not talking about things that are of interest to the voters. He's going to need. He's talking about things 
of interest of the voters he's got already. Um, meanwhile, uh, issues like health care and education, which actually the people who decide elections really care about, they go undiscussed. And uh, in in terms of discussing those things, uh, the the conventional wisdom has been for years that if you end up with uh, a dozen candidates as alternatives to Trump, Trump will hold on to his chunk of the Republican Party, which is over a third of the Republican Party, and and then win easily because we have uh, tend to have winner take all primaries. Uh, what's wrong with that theory? Uh, it, it may be true, but the, the people who advance it, whether they as, as an observation or whether as a defense of Trump or a critique of Trump, need to ponder this possibility, which is uh, and, um, that, that Trump does well early as voters, Republican voters rally to him to defend him from indictments they see as unfair. And then he begins to get convicted of things. And then the sheer sort of gravity of his legal problems drags him down. And the, the Republican Party finds itself in the spring of 2024 in a situation in which Trump is completely in trouble, uh, but it is too late to find an alternative. And uh, so what's the answer to that? If, if that's a concern. Well, I mean, the, the and, and is what is the... Someone, I, go ahead. There's, uh, there's a person on Twitter, a kind of provocative but very intelligent Twitter voice who, who who said who tweeted recently, DeSantis should challenge Trump to a fight, and then he said, "No, I'm not kidding. I mean it literally. He should challenge him to a fight because what, what matters in some way we're we're picking the leader of our pack. We're picking the we're we are basically orangutans who wear pants. We are picking the leader who is going to preserve our little herd or flock uh, in a world of dangers, and we want to know that the leader and not a crazy lunatic who will let us in trouble, but who can stand up for the flock, and." So weakness is uh, is just such a dangerous thing in, in this job. And if, if you are going to want to be the leader and to replace an ailing or failing leader, you need to speak up for yourself. And maybe not literally at this fight, but you need to be willing to fight for yourself. And that is that's one of the things that the, the pattern in 2016 was the anti-Trump camp Republicans would speak up for themselves only after they'd lost. Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, they would play nice until they'd lost. And then they would speak up. But the time to speak up is before you lost. You've lost, not after. And you don't see much of that speaking up, except from Chris Christie. Uh, is right. is he um, a viable choice? Um, I, I wish, but I, I doubt it. Um, I, I think Chris Christie is, in many ways, running. He's he's he wishes he had 2016 to do all over again. I think he, he is questioning many of the choices and decisions he made that year. He thought he would find a path to power by accommodating to Trump. It didn't work out for him, and he feels both humiliated and belittled. And he also he's mad at Trump. He's mad at himself, and he's not trying to have have that decision moment back. But decision moments come back. You don't come back. You have to make the decision at the right time. And the and I think the thing. I would say to the young Kims and the DeSantis's and the Brian Kemp's is, do you want to be four years from now where Chris Christie is today trying to get four years ago back when your moment is now? Act now. And uh, in terms of uh, Biden's viability, especially with some of these new just last 48 hours, these new revelations about uh, Hunter and his uh, so-called sweetheart plea bargain deal. Uh, do you think it is 
a, a certain thing that Joe, Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee? It, it's hard to imagine how they have a way not to do it. But um, here's a, a thing to worry about, whether you're a Democrat or just an American who knows that Biden is your president, for better or for worse. Um, I, I've been reading – I'm working on a big article that involves a lot of reading of um, biographies of Woodrow Wilson. Um, and as everyone will remember, Woodrow Wilson spent the last year and a half of his second term incapacitated by a stroke. But he had warnings of, of health care trouble coming well in advance of the catastrophic stroke, as early as the spring of, of, eight, of eight, 1918. So a year, a, a year before the stroke, he was not functioning as well. And he refused to acknowledge it. He refused to change a vice president. He had a weak vice president. He could have chosen a stronger vice president. He refused to deal with that. He refused to eat health warnings. And, and the result was the country was paralyzed at a critical moment. And I worry about that a lot, not from a partisan point of view or an election point of view, but from an American point of view. What if a president can't function the way the voters believe the president could when they signed up for more for four more years with that president? And uh, and then again, you have the question of now we have the 25th Amendment, which uh, Woodrow Wilson didn't have. And uh, Thomas Marshall uh, well, again, you have a weak vice president, as you did with Marshall, and you, you do with Kamala Harris. Would she be the inevitable Democratic choice if uh, Biden is forced to step aside? Uh, at this point, your time matters so much more than it used to do in politics. At this point, I don't know that there's an alternative to her. It takes four years to build a presidential campaign. If you're starting two years out or at 18 months out, you have to go with the people you have on hand. And uh, that's one of the points that you make in uh, your uh, exit from the GOP's labyrinth of lies. Uh, David Frum, always provocative. We'll uh, link your piece to uh, our website, michaelmedved.com. When we come back, James Cameron, who made the movie Titanic, talks about the horrible story of uh, what happened with the submersive, uh, submersible Titan uh, craft in the North Atlantic. We'll get to it coming up on the Medved Show. You're listening to the mighty Michael Medved Show. Just a little bit of uh, James Horner's great movie score for the movie Titanic. Uh, there's a new piece in Newsweek by Ryan Smith uh, under the heading, Titanic Conspiracy Theory Takes Off After Sub-Tragedy, Hit Job. And uh, he writes that a conspiracy theory branding the two, 1912 sinking of the RMS Titanic a hit job received much renewed attention on social media in the days leading up to the Titan submersible tragedy. Uh, following a frantic search to find the advanced submersible Titan, which was carrying five people, to tour the wreckage of the Titanic at of a bay of a depth of about twelve thousand five hundred feet, it's more than two miles. It was announced uh, on yesterday, as everybody knows, that all had perished in the Atlantic Ocean. The uh, tragedy 
followed renewed social media interest in the Titanic, which was the biggest passenger ship back in 1912. The New York-bound vessel, which had set sail on a doomed maiden voyage from Southampton, England, sank less than three hours after hitting an iceberg, sending more than 1,500 people to their deaths. A uh, post on social media that summarizes a lot of the theories about that disaster says the Titanic was actually a hit job and uh, all the richest people in the world in 1912 were supposed to be on the ship. A Mr. Astor was also mentioned, a reference to property tycoon John Jacob Astor, who was one of uh, several multimillionaires who perished on the Titanic. Quote, he was the richest man in America at the time, according to the video. Basically, this guy was in the way of the Federal Reserve. They wanted to create a central bank, the Rothschilds, and they couldn't. They already owned Europe, but they didn't own America yet. So what they did was they can't just take someone out of that, that importance. They made this big deal of everyone going on the ship, and then in the last seconds, all the Rothschild people exited the ship. That's not true, by the way. <laughs> like right before it was about to take off, the ship sank. All of a sudden, the richest guy in America died on the ship. And then all the politicians who he was basically bribing, all that money evaporated. So they all went to the Rothschild side. And then the next year, 1913, they started the Federal Reserve Bank because there was no more opposition to it. Okay, this is complete nonsense, and the details are wrong. One of the things that is haunting is they found out that the wife of the leader of this expedition, who uh, stopped in Rush, his wife is a great-great-granddaughter of a couple that uh, the Strausses that perished on Titanic. So that's remarkable. James Cameron, who of course made the movie, and he's done a number of dives in submersibles, calls the prolonged search for the Titanic sub a nightmarish charade. Listen, this is clip 11. I didn't hear about it until I woke up Monday morning. I immediately got on the phone to some of my other, uh, you know, contacts in the in the deep submersible community. Within about an hour, I had the following facts. They were on descent. They were at 3,500 uh, 3, meters, heading for the bottom at 3,800 meters. They comms were lost and navigation was lost. And I said instantly, you can't lose comms and navigation together without an extreme catastrophic event, a high, highly energetic catastrophic event. And the first thing that popped to mind was an implosion. So I felt in my bones what had happened. So this entire week has just felt like a prolonged nightmarish charade where people are running around talking about banging noises and talking about oxygen and all this other stuff. And their Coast Guard is out with airplanes. I knew that sub was sitting exactly underneath its last known depth and position. Okay, and uh, then he goes on and talks about some of the hubris behind the uh, submersible voyage and its disastrous outcome. This is 3.5. It's a case starkly 
today where where the collective we didn't remember the lesson of titanic these guys at ocean gate didn't because the the arrogance and the hubris that sent that ship to its doom is exactly the same thing that sent those people in that that sub to their fate and i just think it's heartbreaking i think it's heartbreaking that it was it was so preventable and uh, that's james cameron again and there is a flashback for a 2021 interview with the CEO of OceanGate. That's the company that set up this five-person submersible that was so tragically lost. Uh, and uh, his name was Stockton Rush, uh, descended on both sides from uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence. He said uh, this about the way he'd like to be remembered may he rest in peace i'd like to be remembered as an innovator um i think it was general macarthur said you're remembered for the rules you break and you know i've broken some rules to make this i think i've broken them with with logic and good engineering behind me the carbon fiber and titanium there's a rule you don't do that well i did okay uh i'd like to be remembered for the rules i broke uh, unfortunately, he will be remembered for this horrible tragedy. Uh, it's it, it's one of those things. I was asked this morning about uh, government regulation of efforts like this. Considering the amount of money the government spent on the emergency response here, uh, yes, I do think the government has a role in trying to take reasonable precautions to avoid any kind of repetition. Representative Dan Crenshaw, the Republican from Texas yesterday, uh, slammed the emergency response to the doomed submersible. Uh, this is clip 18. Right, so, so where's the failure here? The, the failure here is to not put all your options on the table. Right. So there's the, you saw that Wall Street Journal article about, you know, U.S. Navy heard this implosion um, with with their acoustic systems. So what what's what seems to me is that the leadership, the Coast Guard, was operating off of this assumption that that was an implosion. Now, other experts in this industry tell me that that could have easily been the sub just hitting the floor. Right. And then you then you add that with this this, this tapping, which was apparently uh, in, in, in like in your standard procedure, SOS every hour, every half hour. You're hearing that throughout the day, Tuesday and Wednesday. It begs the question, could this, could this have been resolved differently if, if leadership had just acted sooner and actually put options on the table instead of just assuming, well, it doesn't matter because they're dead? And uh, the, the truth of the matter is they were apparently perished uh, very early in this process. Uh, coming up, we have uh, uh, two films. Uh, both of them very unusual. Uh, one, Asteroid City, the latest by Wes Anderson, who's become something of a cult filmmaker, and a big all-star cast, including Tom Hanks and Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman and uh, Willem Dafoe and you name it. it. It's a big cast, as he often has in his films. And the other, basically, with just one star, a dominant star of a three-hour special on Netflix, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the story of how he went from being an athlete and a competitor in bodybuilding competitions to uh, being 
one of the major figures in Hollywood, to being governor of California. And then a little bit of a mention about some of the more embarrassing aspects of his career. Uh, we will get to that and more coming up on the Medved Show. Who is there that is... And with all the darkness in our world and all the disturbing news that we get from time to time, this uh, week, of course, the disturbing news of the submersible disaster that uh, we were just talking about, it's uh, worth being thankful for all of the light. Uh, and, uh, of course, we just went past the longest day of the year, but we still have um, more light than we normally do, and I hope that everybody can enjoy it and use it for greater perspective in the weekend just coming up. And uh, that, of course, leads us to the latest from Hollyweird. Okay, one of the big movies that has opened up uh, this weekend is uh, Asteroid City, it is called. And is it a weird film? Yeah, is it weird? Is it hauntingly weird and fascinatingly weird? Yeah, it's, it's that too. It's the latest from Wes Anderson, who's become a cult director. Most recently, he did The French Dispatch, which was a film that I thought didn't work entirely. But he's also done in the past The Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, he's done Isle of Dogs. He uh, is well known for the Royal Tannenbaums, which is one of my favorite of the Wes Anderson films, and Rushmore and more. And one of the aspects of his movies is they usually include a uh, big, splashy cast. And in this case, the cast includes Tom Hanks, and Scarlett Johansson, and Brian Cranston, and Edward Norton, and uh, Jeffrey Wright, Hope Davis, Liev Shriver, uh, and some of them in very minor parts that you might miss with a blink of an eye. Uh, Matt Dillon is actually very telling, playing a car mechanic at the beginning of the film. There's no real plot, uh, and again, it's a Wes Anderson movie. It's about people who are trapped and they're trapped two ways because the film is sort of a filmic takeoff of a play that is being produced in black and white in New York. And then they're actors in the play, but then they also become real on film and that becomes color. And the color takes them to this uh, location of the play, which is called Asteroid City, where they have a junior Space Watchers convention that is being held there. Asteroid City is basically one gas station, one motel in the middle of the desert. And it, uh, they deliberately make the background look like it could be just a theatrical background. And a new uh, widower, Jason Schwartzman, uh, comes to that town because his oldest son, Woodrow, is uh, one of those um, space gazers who wants to come out to uh, this special get-together of uh, junior stargazers. And uh, 
when he comes there, he uh, finds all kinds of mysteries, including a potential visit from an alien. Uh, the movie sounds like this. Where are you? Asteroid City, Farm Route 6, Mile 75. What do those pulses indicate? Oh, the beeps and blips? We don't know. Some of our information about outer space may no longer be completely accurate. I don't like the way that guy looked at us. The alien. How did he, how did he look Like at we're us? doomed. Maybe we are. I've just informed the president. How long can they keep us in Asteroid City legally? The world will never be the same. What's out there? The meaning of life. Maybe there is one. Sometimes I think I feel more at home outside the Earth's atmosphere. Oh, wow. Me too. Okay, that gives you a sense of the flavor of the film uh, about these trapped people trapped either in the play. The play is being uh, directed by Adrian Brody uh, with uh, special uh, advice from Willem Dafoe, who plays a uh, great guru on Broadway. It's it's one of those films that some of the imagery just stays with you and the performances are outstanding margot robbie has a tiny part but she can't forget her uh, she actually is one of those characters who may or may not have come back from the dead uh does this film sound like it's one of those things where you sit on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next no uh you sit on your seat at the edge of your seat uh watching uh, what uh, imagery and what peculiar dialogue is going to dazzle you next. Uh, the movie is PG-13 for uh, quite a few uh, uh, raunchy references and, uh, uh, and not much in the way of any brutal violence. But it does do with life and death and uh, escape and, yes, aliens. Uh, the Jeff Goldblum was in the film, too, by the way. Uh, three stars for Asteroid City. Uh, PG-13, it should be playing everywhere. Uh, the other film that uh, we're covering this week is actually featured on Netflix. And it... Uh, uh, tells the story of its main character. The main character, the only real character in the film, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. And it takes him from his childhood in Austria, in Atal, Austria. It's a middle of absolutely nowhere, where it's uh, uh, Graz is the <laughs> only nearby big city at all and his fascination with America from the time he was very young and dreamed of coming to America because in America you could make yourself a new person. He decided to make himself a new person following bodybuilders and building up his body to become a famous Mr. Universe and more. And the film is divided into three parts, each one an hour. And uh, the first part is... Uh, called athlete it talks about bodybuilding and you'll find out more about the world of bodybuilding than i think you ever knew or wanted particularly to know uh, the second one is actor which talks about his career where uh, he went from uh, playing hercules in new york where he appeared under the name of arnold strong to becoming this uh, tremendous star 
And then, of course, it follows what they call American, the third section of his life, which is his involvement in politics and becoming a two-term Republican governor of California. And uh, what's fascinating about the movie is it's almost all narrated by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is obviously a thoughtful observer of his own life and is remarkably candid with some of what he admits. The film sounds like this. When you visualize something very clearly, you believe that you 100% can get there. There was a lot of things that I had to learn, obstacles that I had to overcome. People will remember my successes and they will also remember those failures. Why did you give up? Well, because my vision didn't talk about giving up. My vision was climbing that mountain. Uh, this is, uh, gives you some of what he does talk about. And when he talks about his failures, obviously the collapse of his marriage uh, was the greatest failure. And that had to do with infidelity with uh, somebody who was working um, as a, a cleaning lady for the family. And uh, yes, you actually meet very briefly the child who was produced by that situation. But it's heartbreaking when Schwarzenegger admits that destruction of his life. The one thing that is missing here is because of the circumstances and the uh, unhappy divorce. Uh, how many divorces are happy? But uh, because of, uh, of, of that, there is no participation in the interviews by Maria Shriver or uh, Arnold's four children. But uh, again, tremendously uh, perceptive interviews from lots of people who worked with him in the bodybuilding phase and in the Hollywood phase and, yes, in the political phase as well. Uh, it's a gorgeously edited uh, film with a terrific soundtrack. And you actually feel like you get to know this guy exceptionally well. And he is unquestionably, even at this stage in his life, in his 70s, an extremely interesting guy. Three and a half stars for Arnold. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's rated TV mature for lots of harsh language. Next time on The Medved Show, is there a real possibility, experts are asking, of a civil war inside Russia and a lesson for a fine parents' rights group and for everybody else, never ever use a quote from Hitler in your newsletter. Why not? We'll talk about it Monday.